morning. Good, good to see your faces. Uh, just a little bit of a check-in. If this is your uh, first time with us this morning, I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to prepare myself accordingly uh, and show you some love. Uh, if you are uh, a special guest this morning, you've never been here before, would you just kind of gently slip your hand up? Yeah, there you are. All right. That's good. Painful part is over. I want to make sure we have a gift for you. If you uh, pass by the Connect table, if you didn't already receive it, please make sure you get one before you leave. Uh, and if I over, did I overlook anyone, anyone else who kind of slowly slipped their hand up? Yep, I see you too. Yeah. Oh, man, I remember you. What's up, bro? You doing all right? Um, good stuff. Yeah, I came and spoke. Did the Q&A. Here, that's right. You were there, FCA folks. Uh, all right, good stuff. Did I miss anybody in this section over here? All right, good. Uh, well, you're equally as welcome, even if you've been here before or you're trying to be incognito as a first-time guest. Um, but it also helps me just kind of in prep and set up for today's message. We are in a series uh, in the book of Galatians entitled Free, where we explore the unique liberty that is made available to us in the gospel. If I missed you on this side, I do apologize. And so um, we are in our kind of third uh, um, uh, third kind of uh, segment or installment on that. And uh, so I don't want you to feel behind so it just helps me kind of know where to settle in as we get ready to discuss um, today's text. So if you um, got your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn over to Galatians chapter 2, which is what we've made our way to, and I'm going to pause briefly and pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, without you, this moment is meaningless. I remember quite candidly the words that you spoke through your Apostle Paul over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if... Um, if the dead are not raised and if the gospel is not true, then our preaching is in vain. This is, um, Lord God, an exercise in ridiculousness if the gospel is not true. I uh, also recall, oh God, uh, through your service in the scripture, that they would come into a particular region and they would say that uh, they didn't know anything else other than Jesus Christ and him crucified and, um, because they didn't want people's faith to rest in anything other than that. And they uh, made an appeal for a demonstration of your spirit. Lord God, I, I do that. I ask that there will be a, a unique demonstration of your spirit that is so precise and you that no one would be able to suggest that this is just the notes from some guy. I pray, oh God, that you would use me in spite of me, that you would teach even me in this moment, that my heart would be newly refreshed uh, in just the great and incredible gems and the glory of your gospel. Help our hearts to fully appreciate what you were doing in history and why it matters for us today. Uh, Lord God, allow us to experience the full testimony of your word, that it is good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, so that we will be complete and thoroughly furnished for every good work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. By now you've already got your devices out or perhaps your Bibles if you do that. And uh, I want to read for us quite carefully um, this stretch of text, but with some brief pauses and giving you some additional understanding of what exactly is happening. But just before I read, just before I read, uh, the fullest appreciation of this series and the book of Galatians in particular would probably uh, come to you if you were to go ahead and read the book of Acts, just kind of in the backdrop, some of the missionary journeys. Uh, how was the gospel advancing in the ancient world and how it came to anchor itself in certain cities and like this city in Galatia in particular. Uh, and if you really want to get a fuller appreciation of what Paul is talking about in the whole of the book of Galatians, uh, stop by and give some special concentration to Acts chapter 15, which is the Jerusalem Council. Now, at the Jerusalem Council, there was an issue that had come to a head in the body of Christ, and that is, as the gospel was advancing, 
and had made its way well beyond the borders of uh, where Jewish folk live predominantly, it had begun to now enter into Gentile regions where they had some distinctly different cultural practices. And what was happening was that as Gentiles were coming to saving faith, authentic, real believers, they were coming to saving faith and belief in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, there were others who were saying, well, in order for you to be the real deal, you need to also adopt some of the cultural customs. It's kind of like if you were uh, an American and maybe you were trying to export uh, democracy to another country. And you not only begin to share the virtues of democracy, but then you also said, but y'all need to open up some McDonald's and some Kentucky Fried Chickens over here if you want to be the real deal. Like you aren't really experiencing the real beauty of, of, of what we got to offer, you know, in democracy. You see what I'm saying? You see how we can, we can sometimes, it's not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, it's bringing too much baby with bathwater, right? Or bringing too much bathwater, right? Um, so this will make more sense in just a moment, uh, but I'm going to read here, and it's, uh, again, Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. It says, then after 14 years, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before me, and, or set, set, before, and set before them, um, and I'm going to skip the parentheses, and you're going to explain why. It makes for an easier read, and I'll go back. I went up because of uh, a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim amongst the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running in vain. So the little parenthetical break there is said that he, he met with some of them privately. So I'm not taking anything away from the Bible, but I want you to see that clean reading. What Paul is talking about in this first few verses is that for 14 years, he has both been living by and preaching from a particular gospel, the same gospel, the same gospel that saved him on a Damascus road. He's been preaching that, and he's been preaching it everywhere he goes, 14 years, preaching it amongst the Gentiles and preaching amongst the Jews. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take that same gospel, and I'm going to set it before those who are at the headquarters of Christianity. That is, I'm going to set it before those who are in Jerusalem, the big dogs in your eyes, right? The people who really know what they're doing. If you question my credentials as the Apostle Paul, I'm going to set this gospel before them. They gave it the sniff test and said, that's truth right there. Nothing's wrong with that. This is the same gospel that he received on the Damascus Road that saved him, and that now he is serving up into the lives of others. That's what these first three verses are about really quickly, right? These first two verses. Because he wanted to make sure. Paul says, I wanted to do that as a quality control for my own doctrinal profundity. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't out there that were preaching something that was aberrant or that was different from what we, the collective apostolic community, had trusted for our own salvation, okay? That's what the first two verses are about. Then he turns the corner and says this in verses three and following. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Jew. Yet because of false brothers who secretly, had secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved for you and from those who, and from those who seem to be uh, influential." In parentheses again, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Therefore, I say, um, who seem, or they're, they're, excuse me, those who I say seem influential added nothing to me. What was happening there again? So, the Apostle Paul says, not only did I take this gospel that was responsible for my own salvation and that I've been teaching 
And I set it before those who, who preceded me in the faith to give it the sniff test, the check mark, make sure it's USDA certified or GSD certified because we're talking about the gospel, right? But then he says, now check this out, uh, Galatian church, those of you who are struggling with this idea of cultural conformity and believing that maybe you need to do something like adhere to Jewish customs, and, uh, Jewish customs in order to be real Christians, hear me carefully. My road dog, my ride or die, my shotgun man, Titus, who is also a Gentile, has been with me on this journey, and he has never felt compelled to get circumcised. So what Paul is saying again is the gospel is not changing over the 14-year period that I've been teaching it and saved by it. It's not changing based on the companions with whom I've had company during my missionary journeys. And then he goes on, as he moves down to verses 7 and following, he says, on the contrary, when they saw, talking about the other apostles, when they saw I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he, that is God, who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, uh, uh, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace uh, uh, was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas that we should go to the Gentiles and, and they to the circumcised, only they asked that we remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Why is all of that conversation necessary? What Paul is doing is building a, a, a further argument, but in greater detail, to something he said over in Galatians chapter 1, which is, am I now trying to please men or am I trying to please God? Because if I'm trying to please men, I am no longer the servant of Christ. And, and, and he, he's further developing this to say, I've spent my entire apostolic career from the time of my conversion to the time of my commissioning to preach the gospel, preaching the same thing without modification. That's what this is. That's the strength of verses 1 through 10. And the reason that that's a necessary argument for the Galatian church is because they have shifted, even though they haven't, they haven't heard or received the gospel nearly as long as Paul has had it. And he's saying, why are you then drifting? This gospel doesn't require modification, neither based on time or context or culture. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is that the gospel frees us from the temptation of, of conformity it frees us from the temptation of conformity. And it does so because of three principal things that I believe you'll see kind of come up from the text here. And they are these, that the gospel is timeless. The gospel is timeless. The gospel is tireless. This will come from our second section that we just read together in brief. And the gospel is tribeless. This will require some additional unpacking, but it'll make all oh, so much sense once we finally get there. Now, We've been talking about the gospel at length together, and as I said with the, the saints at the first service, I often get a little bit anxious about words in the church that get tons of mileage. So when a word gets tons of mileage, like the word gospel, people begin to just kind of glaze over it and fill in the blanks and just say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, we know what you're talking about, gospel. You're talking about that stuff that he's preaching. But, but, but we have worked hard, I hope here, to come to the edge of this stage and define for you in detail what the gospel is. Because we are talking about a specific, as Romans chapter 1 uh, would put it, a very specific demonstration of God's power for salvation. So God's got just power at infinitum. 
But he has decided to package his power for salvation in this unique message of the gospel, which is a description of God's saving work in Christ, through Christ on the cross, right? And so we've talked about it in various different ways. When you hear me preach, I always talk about the voluntary, necessary, substitutionary, victorious death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the cross. I'm describing the power of God unto salvation. You'll hear Pastor Ryan talk about uh, uh, the declaration of the fact that he lived the life that we should have lived, died the life we should have died, and then he was raised in victory over sin. He's talking about the gospel. This is, he is describing, we are describing in our unique ways the power of God unto salvation. And so that same power we're going to explore today is this. It is timeless, it is tireless, and it is tribeless. And when you appreciate those three facets of God's power for salvation, aka the gospel, what you'll realize is that it frees us from the temptation of cultural conformity. And you're going to understand in just a moment why it is that we are all so tempted by the appeal for cultural conformity. So let's talk about this thing of the gospel being timeless. What do I mean? Well, Paul's making one argument with his mouth and a corollary argument, not a contrasting one, but a corollary argument with his life. He's arguing with his mouth that you don't need to make a change away from the gospel you originally received. And with his life, he is painting a picture of how he has not made these external cultural changes seeking the opinions and approvals of others. He's not sought to please others through the way he has presented or lived out the gospel or practiced the gospel. Here's how. Remember the opening words of chapter 2? Then after 14 years, I went up again. I believe that this time frame reaches back to Paul's conversion all the way to his commissioning of the gospel. He's saying, for that entire duration, I have been trusting God and believing the same message. It is timeless. It has not required any modification. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we like that. We want a message that doesn't need update or modification in order to be effectual in our lives. One such document like that in our lives that we, we hope to live under today is the United States Constitution. Some people's toes will curl up in their shoes when I say this, but many would argue, and I would kind of agree, that the Constitution is probably one of the greatest legal documents of our day, ever, of any day, quite honestly. You must say, wait a minute, it, it disenfranchises whole groups of people, and it doesn't, blah, blah, blah. I get you, I hear you, but follow me carefully. What you're pointing out is part of, part of my point. Even the greatest document of our time demands amendment to maintain the elasticity to incorporate the needs of all people for all time. In other words, on a regular basis, the reason that we have amendments is because we recognize that this beautiful and awesome grand legal document called the Constitution, which many people cannot say is not great, and all of its awesome provisions, it in and of itself ceases to be sufficient without the amendatory process because it's always encountering a new issue that needs to be accounted for, but not the gospel. What the Apostle Paul is arguing is that the gospel isn't like your Constitution. The gospel isn't a message that needs to be updated or reconfigured because it discovered some new people group with a new set of issues that weren't previously anticipated. The, the, the gospel isn't a, the kind of document that says we were only prepared to provide freedom for Jews and now all of a sudden we discovered these Gentiles, we got to go back to the drawing board and amend it. That's not the nature of the gospel. It is a timeless message. How do we know that it's timeless? We know that it's timeless because it exposes a need that never expires. 
The gospel exposes mankind's fundamental need for a relationship with God, which is a need that never expires. And it also exposes a second need for reconciliation between one another that never expires. Jesus Christ was often quizzed about the nature of the gospel and the, and the strength of the law. And he would say this, that the greatest of the laws is the one that tells you that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the other is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. He capsulized the entire law, 600 plus commands, and particularly the 10 that many people wanted him to stack rank for them. And he says that law given to you by God wasn't even able to fully anticipate all your needs. But by God's grace, the gospel is. And I give you this. And so the gospel doesn't need amendment because it exposes an issue that does not expire. We all need reconciliation with each other and reconciliation with God. It also expresses a solution that does not require improvement. Like you just cannot improve upon the idea that I should love you as myself. I'll wait a few moments. Can you think of a better deal if I approach you? Would you like me to do better than that to you? Love you like I love myself? After having or simultaneously while loving God with everything I got? Love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. You got a better arrangement? How about this? The Lord who saw you at your worst sent his son and gave his best. You got a better arrangement? You got a better solution? You, got some, you, 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 you want some update to that? God, who has endlessly deep pockets, pulls them out and says, here's my son. Here's the best that I have to offer. I offer you myself. Here's my solution to your biggest issue. You have any adjustment? You got an iOS or a GOS 2 for that? And so the gospel exposes a need that does not expire, and it expresses a solution that does not require improvement. Many people might be saying, well, wait a minute, Pastor Rod. Man, you're, 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 you're kind of spewing all of this saliva and, and beating on this desk or whatever, talking all this stuff. If the Ten Commandments, you know, were sufficient, or if the gospel was sufficient, why, are the, why is it that we, we definitely need something else? Because Christians don't live, right? And what people point to is this. Let's look at the fabric of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not lie. Who's mastered that one? It's like the common cold. Who, we, thou shall not murder. Who, which of us has mastered that one? You shall not cheat. You shall not steal. You should, you, you, you should not put anything before the Lord your God. Who in here has mastered that? Who out there has mastered that? No one. And so the need for someone to help us because we couldn't do it in our own strength, so we needed someone else's strength to help us. We couldn't do it in our own grit, so we needed God's grace. This is what the gospel is proposing. We look at this, you, you look at something like the Ten Commandments, many might say that these are common sense. They are, but guess what? We have no common success in keeping them. The, 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 the common sense of the gospel is this. Our sin condition is just as common as the common cold. We have no cure for it. We've just become more sophisticated in how we address the symptoms. We say to ourselves that... Uh, Abortion is not murder. It's just kind of exterminating an inconvenient clump of cells. We say to ourselves, that's not theft. That's reallocation of resources to a more well-aligned purpose. We say to ourselves, that's not lying. We say it's redirection. 
We have not found cures for the basic character of the, the character coal of humanity. We've just become more sophisticated in how we talk about the symptoms. And the gospel is saying, you haven't, you haven't found a better way to address the sickness, but I have. It's a character issue. It's a core issue for all of humanity. And the apostle Paul offers his life up as exhibit A. Here it is, the, the gospel is timeless. The reason that Paul points to the time frame, I believe, at least one reason he points to this lengthy duration that he's been believing the gospel, is because consider who he is. You and I, as New Testament contemporary believers, our first introduction to Paul is as the great theologian. But for the people who are experiencing him in the pages of Scripture, understand this. 14 years ago, uh, from this reference point, here's the guy who was the arch enemy of the church and the mastermind of mass incarceration and mass murder of believers. And if that gospel is good enough to save him and to keep him, whoa, is it good enough to save us? Think about how we're always able, when presented with the need for transformation, able to find somebody else that is worse than us. Do we have any mass murderers in the room today? The gospel's got elasticity for you. I don't care what your sin is, there's enough elasticity. The, the, the gospel timelessly is able to address sins of that proportion as well as the small child who perpetually lies about who left the refrigerator open or whose empty water bottles those are on the ottoman. The gospel is equally able to address all those hearts. It is timeless and doesn't need modification. So unlike our constitution or even unlike our sciences, where we're regularly learning something else about ourselves that demands that we update, we aren't learning anything new about our brokenness. It just has become more sophisticated. The core solution is still the same. We need a savior because we don't have a serum that makes us stop sinning. And so finally, I just say this that the gospel doesn't need amendment in order to remain relevant. The gospel does not need amendment in order to remain relevant because no one has mastered the two principal issues that Jesus points to, a failure to love God right and a failure to love my fellow man properly. We haven't mastered those. Verses three through six. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because false brothers secretly brought in, who had slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery. Such a cool thing is happening here. The gospel is not only timeless, but number two, it is also what? Don't show it on the screen yet? It is tireless. What do I mean? The gospel is tireless in this way. God is tirelessly through the gospel and without fail, relentlessly providing us with a one-size-fits-all solution that does not have to change based on sin or even type of people. Here it is, we get this close view of the life of Paul and Titus juxtaposed. You guys remember me telling you about the literary device of juxtaposition? Take two things similarly different and hold them close together so that you can appreciate the contrast. Here is the Apostle Paul, one of the most profound and astute, well-practicing Jews of all time, hanging out with Titus, a Gentile, and he says, we both are walking in the gospel in a missional way, and he is not even influenced or has a desire to get circumcised. Why wouldn't he be? If he's got that much, pro if he's got that much proximity, can't you imagine that much proximity with the Apostle Paul, super astute in Judaism, they're sitting around a campfire, and old Titus is like, Man, it's just, you know, sometimes I really don't feel saved, Paul. I was wondering if you would ever, 
No, brother. I mean, certainly that had to be a conversation. Certainly at some point, if Titus need to do anything with his physical body, his flesh, in order to be the real McCord, an actual Christian, Paul would have brought it out and been able to walk him in that way. Now, why, does that, why is that important? Why does it matter? Imagine, if you will, the weight of this argument to a Galatian church, people who are not nearly as a student in the, in the faith as Paul is, telling people that you need to make these modifications. You need to start getting circumcised and follow these new moons and, and practice these festivals and recognize these certain days on the calendar. And Paul says, I am a subject matter expert in those details, and those who are closest to me in the gospel don't even feel one simple itch to ever follow Judaism. Why is that necessary for us? Like I'm, like I'm just going in all hard. And you'd be like, great, thank you for describing the historical situation. It matters to us because while it may not be a temptation to be circumcised, there is a great temptation among us to conform to larger personalities and larger forces around us. Why? Because we all crave at a most basic and human and fundamental level Four things, at least four things. You ready for them? We crave to be acknowledged. We crave to be acknowledged. We crave to be accepted. We crave to be affirmed. And we crave to be adored. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Even the loner amongst us. I'm going to go back over him. I see some people. Look. What did he say? I'm going back. Even the loner, even the pioneer, even the person who has taken so much pride in going against the grain, what we want is at least for people to say, man, that's a good dude. They, we want us to at least be affirmed that we go against the grain. We want to be affirmed as a person that, that isn't uh, 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 following the norm. And then we want to be followed, which means we just want to set the standard as opposed to having to acquiesce to somebody else's. But we all desire to be acknowledged. If you were to come into this church, whether you had been here a million times or if this is your first Sunday, if you came into this place and people made eye contact with you and looked at the floor and looked away and didn't even say hi or at least squint or wink or nod, you would be offended. Because we at a fundamental level all desire to be at least acknowledged. When you take a ticket at the deli counter at Sam's Club or BJ's and you wait for them to slice your, your meat and you got number 24, and they're on number 23, and then she goes, 25. You're offended because you want to be acknowledged. No one wants to be overlooked, even the most basic areas of life. But we not only want to be acknowledged, that's our minimum requirement as we navigate amongst our fellow man. We want to also be accepted. I want to be able to walk into a church like this, and whether I'm wearing a denim jacket like Lawrence or whether I'm wearing the, 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 the most recent sundress made available in the most of Vogue catalogs, I want to be accepted for who I am. If I want, I want to be able to come in here with purple hair and a tattoo of casino cherries on my neck and have nobody look at me and judge me. I want to be received exactly as I am. I want to be accepted. I want to be to have the most boring and mundane outfit and have nobody to look me up and down and make me feel like I'm out of place. I desire, you and I desire to be accepted. In addition to that, yes, Odera, casino cherries tattooed on the neck. I saw you. Do not get them. We also want to be affirmed. Up from, from acknowledgement and acceptance, we want to be affirmed. 
We desire, we have an innate craving that not only do people at least leave us alone and let us be who we are, we want them to affirm. We want them to go, that's, that's a really good cherry tattoo. I'm just curious, who did you get that? That is so well done. Matches your skin tone and you chose the color. I love that. Is that your birthday in there? We want to be affirmed. We want to be affirmed. And guess what? At the highest level, we desire to be adored. We want to be loved. We want to be loved. And because we crave acknowledgement, affirmation, acceptance, and adoration, we are also people who, whether we like it or not, crave positive opinions of others. We want to be received well. And so the Galatians, the, the, the Galatian saints not only are, are people who are affected by this and they want to be a part of the, 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 the centerpiece of Christianity, they don't want to be left behind, they want to feel like they're the real deal, they want to be uh, amicably received and, and, and held up as the original issue Christians, if that's what they think Jews are. But also, those of you who have no tension between Jew and Gentile looking at me, you and I also want to be received as the real deal. In every space in life, we want to be received as good parents, great employees, wonderful wives and husbands, awesome church parishioners. And because we crave that, we are often willing to conform. And then we go to work and we want to be the life of the party at happy hour. We want to be the awesome person who gets their name put on a plaque at the job. And all of those appeals, they, they work on us to where we're, we crave the affirmation of others. In some sort of way, we want to be accepted. But the gospel frees us from that because the Lord sees us fully for who we are, who we were, the worst that we have ever done. It is the gospel. God, God saw you, saw you. He saw what you did in that rental car. He saw you behind that building. He saw you in the privacy of your own heart. He saw how many handfuls of grapes you took at the grocery store and didn't pay for them. You just said you were sampling. He saw you. He saw you. He saw you. He saw the subtle slip of a pencil with how many dependents you have on your taxes. He saw you. He saw you throw trash out of the window on the highway. He saw you cut somebody off and give them special sign language on the highway. He saw you. He saw you speak to your spouse with such venom and then pull up in the church parking lot and smile like you, you're just like Mr. Sunshine. He saw you. He sees every single one of our sins. He sees every nook and cranny of our depraved heart. And the Bible says, and he accepts us, and he loves us. The gospel says that he loves us while we were yet sinners. He loves us. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, while we at our absolute worst. He loves us and he accepts us. But the beautiful and interesting thing about the gospel and the reason that it is tireless is because God works tirelessly to say, I accept you, but I refuse to leave you like I found you. The Bible says this, you can come as you are, but you will not stay as you are if the gospel is really at work within your life. You can come as you are, but you will not be allowed to stay as you are. The Lord says, I will transform you. Don't worry about being conformed to the world because I'm going to transform you. Philippians 
tells us in, uh, um, excuse me, Colossians tells us, Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul, as he's dealing with this issue of circumcision, there's no need to get circumcised on the outside uh, if you believe the gospel like Titus, because what? In, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with human hands. But by the putting off of the, the body of flesh and by the circumcision of Christ, you have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has now made you alive together with him and has forgiven us of all our trespasses. So everything that you wanted in your great quest to be accepted by either a Jewish community, if you were, if you were a Galatian, or you and I, all we, the people we want to be accepted by, the Bible says that God has accepted, adored, loved, and acknowledged and affirmed me in Christ, come as you are, but you will not be allowed by his transformative power to stay as you are. Why? Because not only does the gospel free us from our sin, it doesn't just throw open the, 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 the door to our, to our area of incarceration. It doesn't just free us from that place. It frees us for a certain purpose. And so as I'm being free from my sin for God's purposes, as I come out of this bondage, I begin to grow with new appreciation on how to please God. And therefore, I recognize that pleasing God is an outworking of my salvation and not a buildup to try to gain salvation. So then we are called to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of our mind in Romans chapter 12, verses 2 and following. Because when we are transformed through the renewing of our mind and yielding our lives as a continuous sacrifice, we are then proving the will of God. I, I can't tell you how many people meet you at the edge of stages in Christian circles and say, I just want God's will for my life. Okay, you can actually prove God's will for your life by renewing your mind and working out your salvation. Now, I'm not saying I'm not interested in praying with you for direction or, or giving you some key insights or sharing wisdom from God's word. I don't want anybody to, to view that as some kind of stiff arm or Heisman to, to, to looking for God's, godly counsel. But what I am saying is so often we want someone to tell us the will of God. And the Bible says you can actually prove, hammer out the will of God in your own life by moving from what you were held captive to and begin to live life with a renewed mind. And the will of God is carved out as you walk it out. I believe that one of the largest genres of... Uh, reading available in any library will continue to be self-help because we recognize our general helplessness and we also recognize the need for continuous improvement. And I don't have any issues with continuous improvement. I think people need to be people of discipline and you're regularly adopting refinement in your finances, refinement in your thought life, improving your vocabulary or uh, figuring out how to run a marathon, whatever you want to do. I believe that we are creatures who are designed to do that. However, self-help will only point you to the fact that you ultimately need the Savior's help. Because after you've read all the books and mastered all the principles, you will still realize that there is just one more mile to go, one more thing to do that you have yet to perfect, and it is a work that only the Savior can do. So by all means, try to help yourself, but realize you must have the Savior's help to really solve the great issues of life that we're often taking aim at. 
Know this, that when we look at the life of Titus and Paul, we recognize that the gospel is able to produce complete transformation without cultural defamation. The, 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 Bible, the, Bible doesn't say, the gospel isn't some nuclear bomb that just goes off and just blows up everybody else's culture and say, you got to conform to this. But it's an internal work where the Lord is blowing up my previous misconceptions about who God is and who I am. That's what gets blown up. It's an internal work of transformation. And guess what? That internal work of transformation may indeed result in some changes in some cultural practices that I have. But the cultural changes and practices will not produce salvation. Only the transformation on the inside first will do that. Finally, verses 7 through 10. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter just in his apostolic ministry, just as he, uh, to the circumcised, as he did for me to the Gentiles. This is the most fun part of the message ever for me. Um, If you've heard me uh, preach before, I may have uh, uh, used this word before, the sovereign sense of humor. Have you heard me talk about the sovereign sense of humor? I just think God, uh, because human beings laugh and enjoy laughter, I believe God also has a sense of humor. Uh, And I don't believe that it's sense of humor at the expense of human beings. I mean, sometimes I think he, 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 he laughs people into derision who, who shake their fists at heaven and believe that they can best God. I believe he laughs at them, but I also believe for his people. I believe God is funny. And here's how. Here's one of those moments. Um, God, who has absolutely no limitations on who he can choose, who he can use, how he uses them, and when he uses them, absolutely no limitations chooses to take a man who is one of the most Jewishy Jews that the world has ever seen, keeping the festivals, keeping the feasts. His parents was fully bought in, uh, 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 circumcised him on the eighth day, born of the tribe of Benjamin, outpaced all of his peers when it came to keeping the practices. He would take that guy who both ethnically and practically is one of the baddest Jews in town and then say, I want you to go talk to the Gentiles. I want to use you to talk to a group of people. I want to use you to take my most precious message and distribute my power for salvation amongst the people who are completely, a complete contrast to your ethnic profile and all of your past performance. In other words, you will not be able to load in any of your past other than the work, the past that I've done to transform you into those gospel conversations. Nobody rolling into town will like you because y'all got the same skin tone. Nobody will listen to you because you have the same philosophy or your parents both have a boat tied up in the same yacht club. No one will like you for that, Paul. You'll have to purely depend on my power and the way you go into these foreign regions. But I'm not just going to send a regular Jewish guy. I'm going to send the top Jewish guy available in culture at the time. I think that's hilarious. I think it's absolutely hilarious. The gospel is tribeless. And I believe that's the argument that God is making, is that the gospel does not belong to Americans. It does not belong to Europeans. It does not belong to any particular people group. We know this because the proof is in the pudding as we see it around the throne. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, what? Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to the people of New Guinea? No. Salvation belongs to the Australians? Salvation belongs to the Americans? Salvation belongs to the Jews? No. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The gospel is tribeless. 
No one can, can have pride and, and stake a unique claim to it. This is a part of its majesty and its mystery. The great mystery of the gospel is how it would take something that would seem counterintuitive. I mean, again, Lawrence, if you and I were going to start a technology company, right? We got one territory on the black side of town, south of 20. We got another territory that includes everything from Buckhead to Woodstock. We got two guys interviewing for us. Both of them are going to get the job, but we got to determine where we're going to send them. The black dude graduated from Clayton County High Schools, went to Morehouse, graduated from there, then went to Hampton and got his master's, and his parents are on the board down at Delta. We got this other dude who is from, you know, Walton County, went to North Georgia, University of North Georgia, all he talk about is the, is the lake and everything else up there and Lake Lanier and blah, 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 right? His mama got a shop up there, perimeter somewhere. They sit down before us and we decide to send them jokers into the sales territory to build our new company. Where are we going to send the black dude? South of the city. And where are we going to send the white dude? North of the city. Because we believe he's going to have greater cultural stickiness in those respective regions. Not God. Hilarious. Hilarious. God decides to send this guy to a territory that totally don't look like him. So, so that there might be a greater demonstration of his power, I believe, so that through the foolishness of the gospel, people might recognize that this ain't the work of man. And I believe the greater majesty of the gospel is this, that nobody can say that they own it is a unique truth that belongs to God and to the Lamb. Why? Because it is His work. The gospel describes God's work. The gospel is applicable to every people group, therefore we must work to make it available to every people group. If in the grand scheme of what God is doing here in Revelation chapter 7, God has given us the ultimate spoiler of what he's doing in the grand narrative with humanity. He wants to redeem, and around the throne there will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And then he turns around and says, and I want to equip you through the preaching of the gospel to not only be saved by it, but I also want you to run around town and to serve that same gospel. And I'm not necessarily saying you got to serve it up to all the people who look just like you so that people won't try to reduce it to being a social message that only works for white folks or that only works for poor or that only works for black folks or that only works for urban folks or suburbanites. He wants us to, 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 to share the gospel in context, in a context that makes it so clear that it's God who's doing the work that people feel compelled to fall on their knees or go in the parking lot and get in their cars and hit their head on the horn and say, Lord, woe is me, what must I do to get some of that gospel? And so I believe that the gospel very simply frees us from the temptation of conformity. It frees us from the temptation of conformity to outside opinions and cultures because first and foremost, it's doing a transformative work where we already know that we have been accepted, acknowledged, affirmed, and adored by God when we were bringing our worst to the table. We had no special outfits on which we could put on to impress God, and he still was mighty to save. And in being mighty to save, he says, now, if you really believe that this saving work has take place without all of these external adornings and modifications, would you also be careful to go out and share the same message with others? Now, you may be saying, well, Pastor Rod, are you calling me to be an evangelist? You already are. 
We are already evangelists of things that we believe in and that we're proud of. We can't wait for somebody to ask us where we got that shirt. Oh, when did, don't the new Jordans, when did them drop? On the retro fours, where you get those? We can't wait. We are, eva- we are automatic, reflexive evangelists. Man, I love that ride, where you get that? We are evangelists of the things that we, that we love. We are evangelists of the things that people see in our lives that are different. Well, girl, where you get your hair at? Oh, well, you know, she, she's up in, um, you know, Hampton. I go out to Covington. We are automatic evangelists for anything that we're proud of, which means, oh, which means my evangelistic tendencies with the gospel is going to be directly proportionate to how proud I am or how, how deeply I respect, love, and cherish the great work that God has done in me. Oh, does that not feel weighty and, and convicting? Like, I'm, I'm savoring that. I'm standing here saying, that's not even on the paper. I'm like, really? Think about all the stuff that I talk about. Oh, you're in your dad started a business? Tell me about that. Oh, 15-point outline on how to do it. Oh, what are you doing to lose weight? 17-point outline. Oh, your wife's so pretty. Anything that I'm proud of that I love and cherish, I have no problem being its evangelist. Regardless of how long it takes. I can see you turning blue in the face, waiting for me to be over with the conversation. I'm like, but wait, there's more. Man, can I be that taken by the work of the gospel in my life? That I would become its automatic evangelist without being prodded or prompted? Not necessarily waiting for opportunity, but carving out and forging opportunity? Hmm. I hope so. The gospel is applicable to every people, therefore we must work to make it available to every people group. I think the uh, fundamental appeal of today's message is that the gospel frees us, frees us from feeling like we need to conform to outside forces in order to be accepted, in order to be appreciated, in order to feel like we really belong. God has already made us belong in the body. And because he has already made us belong in the body, the more we cherish and enjoy that work, we want to advertise it and share it with others. I want to be delivered from my care for the collective opinions of others. I don't, I don't want to live carelessly, but I, but I don't want to be governed by the acceptance and, and the quest for affirmation from others. And I believe that the gospel is the only thing that will help me do that. Not just help, I believe the gospel is the only antidote for that. Because I do need acknowledgement. I do need acceptance. I do need affirmation. But the ultimate source that fully satisfies is the one that will say to me, well done, that good and faithful servant. I need it from the one that, that will look at my past and will not pull away and say, I don't know if I can continue a relationship with you. You, you got some, some pretty dirty things in your past. I need I, I need the gospel to affirm. I need a God who, who will accept me as I am, but not leave me as I am, who will work tirelessly to transform me. I need that. Are you inter- do you need that? Are you interested in that? Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come. And not only do I bring myself, but I collectively, just on behalf, Lord God, of these people, as much as I can, pray for the person who needs that tireless gospel 
working in their lives to deliver them from the collective uh, opinions of others. Their whole life or a major portion of their life is marked by how other people feel or think about them. Their life is a continuous matrix of trying to avoid embarrassment and seek out compliments and, 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 to, and to look like a hero. Lord God, would you deliver through just a more potent appreciation of your gospel? I pray for the person, oh God, who has given up on practicing the gospel because they believe that it is an ancient and a dusty message that is, that is not timeless. It was for a particular time, but it's not for now times. They feel like they need something else, something additional in order to really practice your will. Lord God, would you deliver them through from that with a fresh appreciation of your gospel and that it's timeless and doesn't require any additions or any amendments. I pray for the person who is struggling with the gospel because they believe it is for one group but not for them. I pray for the person who knows that the gospel is for them but has a lot of lethargy when it comes to sharing it with others. I pray for the person for whom, Lord God, this is a complete foreign language. They know something in the messages for them and they are very interested in your love, a kind of love that looks at their past and does not pull away. They need you, they don't know you. I pray for that person today. That they will be freshly acquainted with a love of a God who accepts them as they are, but refuses to leave them as they are. Jesus' name I pray, amen. Man, if you're with us today and you do not know Jesus, I know that that's very churchy language. Well, you, you, um, you desire that kind of love to be turned loose in your life that would locate you no matter where you are or what you've done or who you are. And, it's, and it will work tirelessly to transform you to who God desires you to be. If you are interested in that kind of love, you're interested in a relationship with Jesus, and I would love to, to talk in more detail about what it means to know him in that incredible way. Would you seek me out? Would you find me after the service? Would you seek out Brother Derek? Would you seek out Pastor, Pastor Ryan? Would you even come to Alejandro? Would you, would you come to one of us so we can talk you through what it looks like to have that kind of love at work within your life, to receive God's love through the offer of the gospel. If you're here today and you know Jesus, you know him, you know that you've given your life to him, but man, you got a lot of lethargy in practicing your faith. You have found yourself no longer satisfied with God's affirmation. You crave the appeals of others and it is wrecking your life. You have idolized affirmation from others to a point where you can't hear anything if it's, just not a, if it's not a compliment. You crave affirmation in a way, and it's driving you crazy. You, 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 you're looking for a place where you get a chance again to be the star and the hero rather than Christ. Man, if that's you, I, 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 I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. I prayed for you already, but I'd just love to just kind of explore what God might be doing in your heart today. Amen. I appreciate y'all listening to me for just a few minutes.